And we're live. Friends from around the world, welcome to The Great Debate. Not a debate where both sides work to defeat one another, rather where both sides come together to find common ground on the most important issues of our time. Today, Israel-Palestine, our favorite topic, but we're going to take a slightly different angle. We have a diaspora Jew and a diaspora Palestinian. Actually, I should say a Judean and a Palestinian, right? Right. They're going to talk today. Partially. Partially. (laughs) We're going to talk today about what what activism is like from the outside, what it's all about, what others can do to contribute. It's going to be a fruitful conversation, like always. As always, we're going to have an after party in Discord. You can find the Discord in the description, and you can find um, the contact information of our guests in the Discord as well. If you're new to this page, like, subscribe. We have a Patreon. Oh, yeah, shout out to our Patreon supporters. We have – hold on. Hold on. Where did I write it down? You know, I knew I was forgetting something today. Oh, here it is. Trivium Energy PTY. That's a green energy company. They sponsor us. And SOG Cannabis. Yep, we're sponsored by a cannabis company. And Max Marine. We we actually have over 15. Oh we have 15 Patreon supporters today, but those are the three visionary supporters. It, there's It's tiered. Check it out. You, you can see a link in the description. Uh, any support we get, it helps us make more content. It helps us connect more people. It helps aid in the reconciliation process. That's what we're all about. And without further ado... It's an honor to welcome my two guests. To my top left, Isabella Hazan is a Montreal native entering her second year of law school at the University of Ottawa, president and founder of grassroots movement Humanity for Humanity. As a Jewish rights and Israel activist, she has been active with Hillel, CIJA, JNF, Hasbara, CJPAC, and has worked in public affairs and diplomacy at the Consulate General of Israel in Montreal. And to my top right, Mohamed Albana is a first-generation-born son to an immigrant Italian mother and a Palestinian father and an NYC native. He began his public service career as an NYC police officer on 9-11. He currently serves as an educator with achievements in the field of homeland security and criminal justice reform. Mohamed is thriving in increasing the understanding of Islam through interfaith dialogue. He has created a TikTok platform to provide social engagement and to financially support multitude, multiple organizations to combat homelessness, poverty, and hunger while attempting to bridge the conversational gap between Jews and Muslims at large. Muhammad, Isabella, it's a pleasure to have you here with us. Oh, and by the way, they're both big on TikTok. Their links are in the description. Check them out. They're doing awesome content. That's actually how I found out about Muhammad through his cool TikTok videos. Isabella, we go way back, but um, story for another time. Anyways, it's, it's great to have you both here. I want to start just by knowing a little bit more about your work as activists in the diaspora. And for, for those unfamiliar, diaspora is a, is a terminology for people who are outside of the land. So I am an activist living in Israel. I'm not a diaspora Jew. I'm an Israeli. Diaspora activists are ones, are Israelis, Palestinians who are not living on the land. So whoever wants to take it first. Mohammed. <laughs> ladies first ladies always first all right so i'll take it um my activist really activism really started more in person on campus i went to marinopolis and i started a club called humans for humanity and it was a space where everyone could get together and do good in an apolitical way and it's all about tikkun olam and i found that especially in progressive spaces i had to hide my jewish and zionist identity So as I started engaging more and more in progressive spaces or on campus in general, I started to realize that there's a huge, huge, you know, uh, misconception around the word Zionism. And that's the activism that I started doing. And while I was on TikTok, I found that not only is there a misconception around Zionism, but what Jews are. So I try to especially bridge the gap between the Jewish community, the Muslim community and Mo, it's funny how we both call ourselves in this description NYC natives and Montreal natives, but we both see ourselves as native to Israel as well. So I thought that was actually interesting to point out. And fun fact, diaspora with a capital D refers to the Jewish diaspora. So that was interesting. But uh, yeah, that's what I do. I try to be involved as much as possible. I write and take it away, Mo. 
So how did I begin? Um, I would say my turning point in this was my first uh, trip uh, when I was about nine years old to Gaza. And at the time that I went, Gaza was under occupation. Um, so I got an opportunity to kind of understand what occupation was because growing up in the States, as you can imagine, it's something very trivial to be told uh, a, a political term as an occupation. So growing up, I went there, I lived there from the ages of nine to uh, 12. Um, I spent eight months um, in the detention center because at the time that I was there, um, it was illegal for under occupational rule. And we're going back to the uh, late 80s, early 90s. It was illegal to hold a Palestinian flag that was considered uh, inflammatory propaganda material. Um, so at that time, I was there and I said, okay, this sucks. What do I do? Um, and I kind of grew up. And, and when you're that young and you're that naive, you don't really know what's happening to you. You just kind of know something's happening. You don't know what. And I was there with a bunch of other children and some young preteens. And when I finally got back to the States, again, naive, you're not really understanding what happened to you. As I got older, um, I was about 13 years old. And I was just, it was funny, I was just talking about this. One of my closest and dearest friends growing up was older than me by about, about three and a half years. And one day we were just riding our bicycles and he leans over and I see a Star David necklace come out of his shirt. And I go, Evan, why are you wearing that? And he goes, because I'm Jewish. And I'm like, wait, you're Jewish? He was like, yeah. I was like, but wait a minute. You guys don't like guys like me. Like, you don't like me. He's like, why don't I not like you? I ride bikes with you every day. We hang out every day. We, you know, we do everything every day. And then I opened up a bit of my story to him. And then he said, well, look, man, my parents are from Russia. My temple's literally down the road. I don't know why I would hate you. That, to me, was my turning point. Those two moments were two like yin and yangs that I got to see two different sides of a coin where I started to separate the identity of being Jewish with the politics of Israel. And then I started to understand that, wait a minute, I'm no longer going to have the same one size fits all mentality for every aspect of my life when I come into an interaction with someone that's Jewish. That's not fair. That's like someone labeling me based on their one interaction of someone that happens to be a Palestinian or happens to be a Muslim. And that to me was the turning point where I said, look, I can't look at people like this anymore. There has to be a different way of observing things. And that to me is that turning point. And that's how I got to where I am today. Thank you, Muhammad. First of all, I'm sorry you had to spend any time at a detention facility for what seems to be just freedom of expression. So I'm really sorry you had to go through that. You know, you bring up a very important point about being able to separate people from certain government policy. And Isabella, I would say this probably touches a bit into a lot of what you see in campuses. Would you say that Jews are often meant to feel unsafe somehow because of Israel's policy or, you know, there's kind of blanket statements about what it means to be a Zionist or Jew because of how they perceive certain aspects of Israeli policy? Absolutely. And we see that all the time online, especially on TikTok. And I know Mo can relate to that because we've had conversations about this, how it's unreasonable and crazy to see comments like free Palestine on a Jewish person's video that has nothing to do with Palestine, with Israel, or just being Jewish. And it's like our entire story as a people is characterized by Palestinian suffering to some of the world because I feel as though our narrative has been hijacked as Zionists and as Jews. So I've had this conversation with Mo before, it's interesting, but I think we're conditioned to believe, especially in this cancel culture era, where there's a magnifying glass on identity and who we are, and so much so that the second that there's a disagreement, automatically our morality is put into question. And automatically it's like, oh, that's, you believe this, there's no more discussion, it comes to an end. And what I really appreciate about Mo is that he discusses and on his TikTok lives, there's an amazing community and I commend you for this community you've built. And before I get into um, how I feel on campus about the anti-Semitism, I wanna focus a little bit about how to fix that problem and not just 
you know, emphasize it. So on Mo's life, for example, there's there's Palestinian women and Arab women who will message me after and be like, what hair products do you use? And it shows that we have so many more similarities than we do differences. Middle Eastern women, hair problems, of course. So to me, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. To me, it's interesting our role as activists in the diaspora, how we have a critical distance from the land. Yes, we do share a skin in the conflict, but at the end of the day, we should not have the right to define policies of what's happening over there because we don't live on the land. So the way I feel is as though the reason why there's a misconception on campus about people who will define Judaism for Jews and so on and so forth is that we're not telling our story. And and when we are, we aren't listening. So for example, I think it's really important before having this discussion to know what is a Jew? What is a Zionist? And to define the terms that we're using before we even get into Israeli policy. Because we, if you see a Chinese person, you're not going to comment on their videos or tag them for the persecution and genocide of Muslims happening in China. We only see this double standard with Israel, or it's very prevalent, this narrative. Mm -hmm. So as Jews, we share a common culture, history, and land, and language. And these characteristics are what bind us together as a people. And Judaism is not only a religion. We're an ethno-indigenous religion. And I think what's interesting is that hate is rooted in ignorance. And the reason why we see this on campus, I don't believe that people who are saying these things are, are hateful. I believe that they're just ignorant and they don't know. I think that the hate comes about when you choose to not know and you choose to turn a blind eye. So as, as a Jewish indigenous, indigenous ethno-religion, I think it's important for us to get our narrative out there as our role as diaspora activists. So I do see it time and time again on campus, especially through BDS, which is the boycott divestment and sanctions movement of Israel. This is an anti-Semitic movement. And we can talk about the, you know, Natan Sharansky's 3Ds who's established why it's anti-Semitic, but it completely stops discussion. And that's when, that's a common problem. So yes, I have seen this time and time again, this abhorrent narrative that Jews are, are it's the fault of the Jewish people who are in the diaspora for what's happening. And it's like, yeah, let me just call Bibi, tell you, hey, Bibi, what's up? Let me, let me free Palestine for you. It doesn't work that way. So, Samo, what do you think about dialogue and these anti-normalization policies and taking, you know, the cartoon campus or the cartoon to TikTok, those three no's and completely halting the discussion? And I know that you continue encouraging discussions. What do you think about that? And how do you think we can come about discussion? So... There's a lot of points that Isabella brought up that are really great talking points and really important ones. Number one, um, first of all, regardless of your beliefs or heritage or or nationality, you should always be safe wherever you are. That's that's that should never fly. Um, I'm for one a strong proponent of maintaining a consistent positive dialogue, and I've always said. I don't approach any conversation with debate because at that stage in the game, you're simply going in with a mind structure that I'm right and I have to prove how you're wrong. If I'm open to speaking on my points, that means I'm opening to listening to yours and vice versa. So number one, the dialogue aspect of this is very important. Um, I, you know, on my live, I have several people that constantly go in there more, more recently, actually, as they've seen me uh, become a a uh, stronger, uh, I guess, bond with the Jewish community where I've been attacked as being, you know, anti-Islamic or anti-Palestinian. Um, I sometimes even get some folks on there debate, debating on, the, on the, the Zionist aspect of it because I've made a TikTok where I simply asked, you know, what is being Jewish? And just simply asking that, I've learned this, ask two Jews, three opinions, and and I and I got that from a Jewish person, and they were like, "Listen, you know, the because Isabella brings up a good point. You have to define what is Zionism." And me simply asking that when I have these discussions with folks, I get several different answers. So I think one of the number one points that needs to get addressed first is what is Zionism, because there's a lot of times where I'll say, for example. Um, I am not anti-Semitic because I've been taught that the term anti-Semitic means hatred or a disdain or a racial prejudice or bias towards the Jewish people. So I am not that. 
But then I've also been told on the same confold that if I am anti-Zionist, then I'm anti-Semitic by default. So then I say, how can that be? So I'll have some opinions that say, no, 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 I'm Jewish and I'm not a Zionist. So it's okay. Then I'll have another set of opinions that say, no, 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 Zionism is built into our religious structure. That's the fabric of who we are. So by default, if you're anti-Zionist, you're automatically anti-Semitic. So imagine a little guy like me sitting on the outskirts who simply finds fault in the politics of Israel. If I come to critique it, what am I actually critiquing? So then I get confused. So I think the number one issue should be for the, I guess, uh, community of, of, of whether it be the Jewish community or the, or the, uh, the Zionist communities to define in factual terms, unequivocally, what is and what isn't. So that the guys like me are having the right dialogue and using the right vocabulary and that that vocabulary can be constructed. Because I, 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 asked, <laughs> I made a comment, I did a TikTok, I don't know if Isabella saw it, where I refused to do a job for a particular person. I had a, I have also a small side business uh, where I do home repair and the person was making extremely strong anti-Semitic comments. And because that person knew that I was Muslim by my name, Muhammad, and asked me prior, where are you from? And I told him my heritage automatically assumed that I would be anti-Semitic. So they were being prejudiced to me, assuming that because I'm Muslim, because I'm Palestinian, I'm automatically by default going to hate Jewish people, started making these really outlandish slurs and comments. And I said, look, uh, here's your money back. Have a good day. And he was shocked. And he said, what, 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 you know, what, what? and this is a, a, a prominent developer in Brooklyn, in Borough Park. And he said to me, well, what's going on? You know, why are you offended? You're Palestinian, you're Arab, you're Muslim. Like, I don't get it. I said, it doesn't matter. If you're going to be that disgusting about another group of people to my face, that means you're equally going to be just as disgusting about me to someone else. So what I've learned in my time on this earth is you have to stand on principle because any form of, of bias or prejudice towards any group of people is towards every group of people. That's what I've learned. So that's why it's hard for a person like me who wants to be vocal and sometimes wants to be critical of Israel or Israeli policies, where you say to me, for example, if you're anti-Zionist, you're anti-Semitic. Then to me, I say, but how is that possible? I'm trying to critique and criticize the policies and the government, not the people. Yeah, we, we could, if you both want, we can stay on the topic of both is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism and is BDS anti-Semitic. But I, I will put a little disclaimer that it's a very complex topic. And to answer the, the, the question, is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism, we need to agree on the definition of anti-Semitism and we need to agree on the definition of Zionism. And this is why this debate gets so challenging because People view Zionism as diff very different things, and people have different definitions of anti-Semitism. Would you both like to stay on this topic? I would like to just talk to it for a minute. Mo, we can stay on it if you want. If we could just see where things go. But I think it's important that we listen to what Zionism is from Zionists. And I noticed that the videos that you shared were from very strong anti-Zionists who didn't really have calling Zionism racism and all these kinds of explosive claims. And one thing that's common within all Zionists is that we believe and we know that Zionism does have a definition. And a part of the problem is that Zionism is being redefined. And that's an issue that I think that if we both come to, you know, understand it's something that we can fight against together the same way I would fight against someone redefining Palestinian national identity or people who say Palestine doesn't exist. This is stuff that we need to, you know, fix in both our camps. And to start off, Zionism is the belief, movement, or ideology that Jews have the right to self-determination in our ancestral and indigenous homeland. It's an indigenous sovereignty movement. That's what Zionism is. And it has come about in, you know, the 19th century with many other nationalist movements. So when we see Zionism, this is what Zionism is. There are many different kinds of Zionists, secular Zionists, religious Zionists, all kinds, but all of these Zionists will agree on this definition. And I think it's also important to know that the vast majority of Jews are Zionists. And when we're talking about Zionism being anti-Semitism, the only way that I see that it will not be anti-Semitism is that if you don't believe 
that countries shouldn't exist or people sh or no one should have the right to self-determination, then why shouldn't Jews not have the right to self-determination? Because Zionism is the reason why, first of all, I exist. And the reason why activists and, you know, um, the expulsion of Jews from the Middle East exists, in the Middle East, North Africa exists, in Israel. So I think that's extremely important to know when we're talking about Zionism, is that definition that is common to all Zionists. So just to interject, it's going to make this a little bit more confusing, but Isabella, I would agree that most people would agree that Zionism, or, or most Jews would agree that Zionism is the Jewish right to self-determination on our ancestral homeland. But what does it mean to self-determine? And, so and self this is where it gets tricky. So that's interesting because different indigenous peoples have different ideas of sovereignty. But as Jews, we have made it clear what our aspirations and I think the more we talk about should Zionism be here or not is we're bringing ourselves back. Zionism has already succeeded. Zionism, Israel is a state. Israel exists. Israelis exist. So to that point, I have to say is what is self-determination? I believe that Palestinians should have self-determination. I think it's a must. And I also believe that the language that we use in, a side note, the language that we use in this Conflict is absolutely absurd. Are you pro-Palestinian or anti or anti-Israel? And I see a lot of that rhetoric. And there's no future without the both of us. So when we're talking about self-determination, it's not a zero-sum game. Both peoples should have the right to self-determination, should be the authors of our own future. And as Jews, as a resilient people who have gone through thousands of years of persecution, Israel's a guarantee that we will be here. So this, to me, is what self-determination means to the Jewish people, because who knows what will happen in Canada? A Canadian Prime Minister has once said, one Jew, too many. Where will we be comfortable? And I think as Jews, we learned this lesson of we don't want to be a minority in any land anymore. It has not worked for us. In you know, 1947, no one had the audacity to say Israel shouldn't exist. The Peel Commission was accepted in 1937, where Jews accepted 20% of the land. So... When we're talking about what self-determination should look like, it's different for each peoples. And I think that what we need to do here with Mo and I is talk about what will self-determination look like for Palestinians? How are we going to empower Palestinians? Because Palestinians should be able to go wherever they want in the land, and so should Jews. And when we get stuck on definitions, we're bringing ourselves back. And when we get stuck on, you know, especially racing each other, and I think that that's the biggest thing that I've experienced in this field and in this conflict is the erasure of each other's identity and the hate that we have towards each other that's normalized, that we don't even see. So Mo, I don't know if you've seen this TikTok trend where it's like a Jewish Palest a Jew or a Palestinian guy or girl will be like, broke your heart, that one was for Israel. Broke your heart, that one is for Palestine. Did you see that one? <laughs> yeah, that's yep. so cringy. It's so, so cringy. cringy, but it's a very good example of how anti-normalization and hate towards each other is completely normalized. When I see people, is Jews, posting that, I tell them, delete that. That's hateful. That's disgusting. You shouldn't want to, it's the definition of, it's like the class example you gave to me yesterday, Mo, with maybe you want to talk about it. I think it was really good. But um, how you're literally giving hate towards somebody because they were born a certain way. And I think that's silly. And actually, Mo, your your uh, grandfather, his first wife or, was Jewish and in the land. So how could we on TikTok, diaspora, Palestinians, Jews, Arabs, make these trends and make them normalize. It sounds funny, but it's actually deep, deeper than what we see. So I, I'm just going to go back a couple of steps. Yeah, I went a little bit. So the number one thing that I think is a frustrating factor, this topic has been up for debate for decades already, and it's getting old. And yeah. the, the unfortunate focus that I find is, is even in, in modern day, when people try to have a discussion about Israel and Palestine, as you mentioned, if you're pro-Palestinian, then they automatically assume you're anti-Israel. Or if you're pro-Israel, they automatically assume you're anti-Palestinian. And I had this conversation um, with Isabella, and I likened it to almost like the LGBT community. If I'm anti-LGBT, excuse me, if I'm pro-LGBT, then you get ostracized by those who are anti. And if you're anti-LGBT, then you're automatically considered uh, you know, homophobic. Well, then I say, well, what if it, if it's a matter where you can be both? I support aspects here, but I'm equally on aspects here. Can't, can't you do both? You can. 
just because I'm pro-Palestinian does not mean I don't believe you, Adar, have a no right to be on that land. Because as you mentioned earlier, you grew up there and you were raised there and you were born there. For me to expect almost 70 plus years of a people's existence to magically uproot, disappear, and then give all the land back to another people is ridiculous. It's not going to happen. You can't do that. So with that, I've even mentioned to Isabella, the whole Palestinian authority needs to get gone. That We need new blood in there. They're not doing any type of leadership. Hamas needs to go. This no longer can be a constant talk of what was and the past. Because in doing that, Jews, let me tell you something that Jewish, Jewish people and, and, and Arabs have in common. We like to always remember our history. And we constantly will remember our history. And every time we talk about present day, you'll have someone who'll talk about 1948, 1967, 1970, And we're like, buddy, listen, do you know how many families were born and raised and grew and have become grandparents since then? We can no longer have those discussions. We have to start training um, people from now to look at what is and look forward. We're too busy always with our heads over our shoulder. We're bumping into walls. And that's why these conversations go nowhere. We have to now have a progressive conversation that's actually meaningful. And it has to be fruitful. Because I'll tell you right now, yes, I'm from Gaza. And the, the condition in Gaza is disgusting. And I wish it wasn't that way. But I also have to be a realist and understand that the creation of Hamas, which began as a resistance movement, is no longer that anymore. It's no longer that. Now it's a, I'm going to maintain power. Uh, I'm not going to change my ideas. I'm going to be this way and I'm going to be stern. And this is how I'm going to view my enemy. But that's no longer the case anymore because you can't do that. It just doesn't work. It's no longer a real way to approach any problem. That is why the PA has tried to kind of rebrand itself. But then they also punish their Palestinian uh, citizens because they constantly need to maintain that power by subjugating them in these horrific conditions just to look in the public as if they're, they're the victims. The real victims are the Palestinian people who have no voices. The real victims are the Palestinian people who want better, who I guarantee you today, just as the citizens that are in East Jerusalem, just as the Palestinian, uh, uh, excuse me, the Arab Israelis are today, in a heartbeat, would love to intermingle and mesh and be a part of what is the progressive world. No one wants to live on a tent in an outskirt. No one wants to be a refugee. No one wants to be in an open air prison. But the fact of the matter is that the only leadership that the Palestinian people have, have made them view the opposite side with such a animalistic lens that they're so detached from interacting with normal people. If you take a person from Gaza today and you bring them to the U.S., it's not only culture shock. The fact that I would even be talking to you folks to them would be beyond a concept. How could you talk to Israelis? How are you doing that? That's how far removed. And I do place some of the blame on the Israeli government for enacting such a stiff blockade because in doing that, I do think that doing that kind of hardened their hearts more to kind of prove the point. So when we talk about the, 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 the whole idea of how do we bridge this gap, it's we need to stop with the past. We need to look at what is right now and think, what is the end game? How do we get these people together? Because if I can come on a platform like this, be where I'm from with the faith that I have, then clearly my faith is not an enemy to yours, just like your faith is not an enemy to me. It's simply a matter of what have we done and what are we doing? to progress this conversation to be something meaningful. Because as Isabella mentioned, my, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather's first wife was an actual uh, Palestinian native Jewish woman from a tribe. And she hailed from a tribe outside of Yaffa where he was from. And in those days, and, and this is another thing that you can ask and you'll, you'll understand if you ask any Sephardic native or any Arab native, the idea of borders is a very relatively new one because for the longest period of time, if even you go back to the Ottomans and prior, there was no such thing as borders. It were regions. So for example, the region of the Levant, which comprised of what is present day Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine was a region and you were defined by the region and your tribe, depending on what land they inhabited, was defined by that land. 
So if you happen to be, for example, my family, we hail from Yaffa. We ended up in Gaza because of the of the uh, of the 1948 movement, but we were part of a region. So in that region, you were in, in different tribes, and each tribe had their own land. So this is also another concept that is relatively new, not new for arriving Westerners because they've always had borders. But if you look at the if you look at the region historically, it was never nations. It was more of Uh, regions with inhabited tribes. Even in Arabia, you had Yemen, which is which is actually bigger than what is present-day Saudi Arabia. And it wasn't even called Saudi Arabia. It was called Bilad al-Arab, which was for all tribes. There was 37 different tribes in that area. Now, there's only 13, and there's only one ruling tribe, which is Saudi. And that's, a you know, we're going off the tangent a bit, but I wanted to give you an idea of how they used to live together. So the whole concept of 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 the culture within the Palestinian culture in of itself was is a very tribalistic one. So for them, being a part of that land is also being a part of attached to their original culture where they originally came from. So I and my family are not native Gazans. We just happen to be in Gaza as a result. But our actual tribe and where my paternal grandfather's wife came from was Yaffa. And they only separated as a result of the constant turmoil from 1948 forward and dissolved their marriage in 1956. So, and this wasn't because they couldn't get along. It was because the politics is almost like we said before, you have to choose a side. How can you be Jewish married to this Palestinian? Don't you see they don't want us here? How could you be Palestinian married to this Jewish woman? Don't you see her people don't are kicking us off our land? So that literally, and this is one of many, many stories. One of many, many stories that I'm sure you probably have heard or, or will hear. But that's that's a strong point to, to understand that at one time we did live together and we were fine. And there was no tra- no trauma. Yes, you have issues in I think it was uh, in Hebron. You had a massacre of Hebron, which I believe it was like in the, in the early 20s. But that was done by an Egyptian military leader who killed Muslim Palestinians, Christian Palestinians, and Jews alike. So we've always suffered together. So the idea that a Jewish person is my enemy is something that I'm fighting to, 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 to stop in the mentality of the Palestinian people and explain to them, no, politics is your problem. One-on-one, we don't have a problem. But you have to be able to have that dialogue and explain to someone Explain to them what it means to be who you are and understand what it means to be for them. Because I'll tell you one thing. I believe that the Israelis in Israel today, yes, you should be there. You deserve to be there. But there has to be a mechanism in place to safeguard that being there doesn't mean that I'm going to demolish all these homes and kick all these people out. That being there means that I'm not going to uproot and automatically start taking over homes simply because I can So I think that they should be there, but there should be some kind of safeguard in place to kind of say, look, is this healthy for our future? How is this going to be productive? Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm very happy you you wrapped it up with that, Mohammed, because that's actually a point I really wanted to get to. Um, So, Isabel, you know, we we often hear BDS is anti-Semitic, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitic. The main reason... I struggle with those statements is because it's very hard for Palestinians not to not to support BDS and not to be anti-Zionist because for them Zionism is oppression. It's Zionism that displaced them. They they wait at checkpoints because of Zionism. They have home searches because of Zionism. And BDS, you know, we often tell Palestinians stop being violent. For them, BDS is one of the, the one of the only outlets they have to peacefully protest their conditions. And then we say, but then you're anti-Semitic for doing that. Now, as, as you already mentioned, Isabel, that's just an issue of not understanding well enough what Zionism is. It's a definitions issue. So I, I would say the onus is on us activists to better educate people and explain to them what does Zionism look like and how does that not come at the expense of the well-being of the Palestinian people? This is the case that the young activists of today need to be making. So I, I'd love to stand this topic and, and try to talk about the vision of what is Zionism in a way that d- does not get in the way of Palestinian liberation, Palestinian well-being. 
I, I think this is a conversation that, that that activists need to be having today. So before I answer the question of why, I guess, why BDS is fundamentally anti-Semitic, mm -hmm. I think it's important to understand that Jews are not foreign to this land. And when we're talking about, you know, uprooting homes, and I want to touch on some things that Mo has mentioned, let's talk about the first Aliyah in 1882, when Jews from Russia came. There, it wasn't just that Jews came and came with arms and were ready to, no, these were people who wanted to come and farm the land. But I think it's important to know that if we want to move forward, we have to remember a little bit of the history. It's not that Jews came and were foreigners to this land. They came to build the land and there was also an Arab rejectionism of Jews in this space. And we see that with Raham Azman later on and how um, after the 47 refugee problem is that there is also an idea that Jews feel this deep Arab rejectionism, whether it was the Peel Commission, the partition plan. And it just to touch on the point of history, I know we want to move forward past it, but in order to move forward, I think that we need to understand each other. So like you mentioned, Ada, it's not just a question of a definition that we get hung up on. It's a question of Jews are not foreigners to the land that we're indigenous to. We have an age old connection to it and we've maintained our identity and our collection indiv individually and both collectively to this land. As an indigenous religion, we, as Jews, we are, we are fire keepers, women like the, Sh the Shabbat candles and we have a relationship with the land. And I think that is a fundamental issue when, we, when we're talking about BDS because here we see uprooting from homes and. It's, it's funny that we talk about that with the checkpoints. The reason that there's more home searches is because there want to be less checkpoints for innocent Palestinians who just want to go somewhere. Because it's not that Israelis raid homes or that the IDF raids homes like that. It's because there is, like Mo mentioned, you know, a problem with education and seeing the other as each other's enemy in both societies. But the PA rewards terrorists with uh, money. And the way Israel takes home demolitions as a way to not affect innocent Palestinians who want to go to, to, through checkpoints, intelligence has gotten stronger. So I think it's important to know that it's, this is not a zero-sum game. Both sides are suffering. In Sterot, the rockets are being fired, and that the more we have empathy towards each other and we understand that we're both suffering and that Israel's in a position that it doesn't want to be, the Oslo Accords were created this huge balagan, this huge mess. And as we discuss, especially with BDS, we have to realize that we are on the same page. Mo and I are on the same page. We want Israelis and Palestinians to live together and be able to travel wherever we want. And how are we going to come about this? BDS is not a conducive solution to peace. And here's why. We are both, Mo, I've seen you, this discussion, this has been a, you know, um, a point that has come up time and time again, is that we need to start talking. BDS stops all discussion. And as a student on campus, it's if I want to engage with a BDS activist, I have to first accept that Israel is apartheid, a false claim. I have to first accept so many other things. And we've seen it from the founder of BDS, Omar Barghouti, who's a Tel Aviv University graduate, calling Israel apartheid. That's crazy. And I, I, I went to Tel Aviv University. And similar to Mo's story about his friend Evan, that's where I met my Palestinian friends. I met so many friends there and the girl who would do my eyebrows, she was Palestinian. I went to her house and she, she's like, oh, wait, come on my couch, sit on my lap. And I was sitting on her lap and she was just doing my eyebrows. And that shows that Israel is clearly not apartheid. There is, and this is not to say that Israel's perfect. Israel's not perfect. Far from it. But BDS propagates these lies about Israel. And that stops the discussion for an activist like me because I cannot be a Zionist and and be a part of this movement. And we see this with Natan Sharansky's um, three Ds, the delegitimization, double standard, and demonization of Israel. And that's what makes criticism of Israel anti-Semitic, those three Ds. And that's what, and we see that time and time again, time and time again with BDS. So for example, BDS, Isabel, what are the three Ds, sorry? Demonization, the double standard, and the delegitimization of Israel. So, those are the Ds. So to demonize Israel, to call Israel, you know, I've heard this, um, a terrorist uh, state or, um, you know, an apartheid, and it's demonizing Israel. Or to say that Israel doesn't have a right to exist or to hold Israel to a double standard, that's what makes it anti-Semitic. But to criticize Israeli policy, like Mo mentioned, 
is not anti-Semitic. It's actually a very Zionist thing. Zionists criticize Israeli policy all the time. So Knesset members do. I think if you're a good Zionist, you'll criticize Israeli policy. And you have to. Because I will criticize Israel because I want Israel to be better. And I want it to be better for Jews and for Palestinians. So to go back again on BDS and why it's not... uh, And I'll push back. You mentioned that it's non-violent. BDS is violent. Ask a diaspora Jew on campus, or if you see the videos of, I don't know if you saw the video of Khan Mazik, for example, how there was chairs being thrown. BDS leads to violence. And I would push back on that. I think it's a misconception, especially on campus. So BDS is fundamentally an anti-Semitic movement for the simple reason that BDS seeks the destruction of Israel. The founder himself said it. He said he wants a Palestinian state, Omar Barghouti said, a Palestinian state next to a Palestinian state. That's not peace, and that does not allow for dialogue. And there's the example of SodaStream. SodaStream was uh, once opened in the West Bank where Jews and Palestinians worked together in this factory. SodaStream closed down because of BDS, and then what happened? Palestinian Arabs were out of jobs, and it was a beacon of coexistence where Jews and Arabs worked together. And now what? It was bought out by Pepsi-Cola. So what did BDS do? Did not affect did not affect Jews or Israel in any way. Israel's economy is booming. It really affects diaspora activists. And one more point that I want to touch on is the cultural boycott. If I'm a Jew and BDS passes on, on campus and I want to go to Tel Aviv University, my teacher will not cannot write me a reference letter. And that has happened. So that's also people. That touches people. Israeli professors cannot come to campus. That also, like Mo mentioned, the idea of hardening the hearts, that hardens the hearts of Jews and Israelis because BDS does exactly the opposite of discussion. Um, I, I mean, I'm not going to input too much of my opinion. I would say I think I w- we, we see it a little bit differently, Isabella, but I am the moderator, so I'm going to stay pr- pretty neutral. But I, it's, I, I have a feeling where we're defining anti-Semitism a bit too broadly. And it's something that Western activists have done in recent years with racism that, that I object to. And I, it kind of seems like we're doing this with, with anti-Semitism. It like for a Palestinian to support BDS, that says nothing about how they feel about Jews. It just says everything about how they feel about Israel. So I would agree with you. And that's, I would agree with you because that's something that we're taught. When I see, I was mentioning this yesterday, when I used to see the kefiyah when I was younger, I didn't see it as a, for Palestinians, this is something amazing. It's the kefiyah, it represents resilience. When I saw the kefiyah, I saw, I would think about all the terror stories and the border and the clashes. That's not how I associate the kefiyah. So I have unlearned this. And as activists, we also need to, on both sides, in both camps, whether it's with the TikTok videos or unlearning, you know what, the Maganda Vida, most friend was wearing, or whether it's me to unlearn what the kefiyah represents, we need to unlearn, um, you know, movements that are counterproductive to both of us. And BDS is counterproductive to both Israelis, Jews, and Palestinians. And it's not a way to support Palestine because it's caused it. The the movement itself is built to destroy Israel, and I think that is something that we can't argue. And that's you believe that Adel, for example, sorry, Adel, do you think that Israel? Israel not having the right to exist is anti-Semitic? Yes, I would say by and large it is, but I would not call a Palestinian who holds that opinion anti-Semitic because I can understand where it comes from. I just don't view it as as, uh, constructive. Like I I try to use the term anti-Semite for people who actually hate Jews. I think that the, the relationship Palestinians have with Israel is extremely complicated and, uh, you know, I just don't see it as, as a helpful label to give them when they object to Israel's existence because of the amount of pain that Israel's existence has caused them. So that, that's kind of where I stand. But I, I do fully agree with you that BDS is not productive. I, 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 don't, I don't think they've, they've helped Palestinians. Um, I, I think they're taking the wrong approach. So we, we would agree there. I think d- definitions and framing, there's probably small difference in opinion. Um, maybe even large difference in opinion, and that we could talk more about in the after party, which will start in like 15 minutes. For those who are unfamiliar, join our Discord. We're going to have an after party. I, I do want uh, Muhammad to chime in. Your thoughts on the whole um, BDS thing? If if you can kind of understand the the idea of of why Isabella thinks it's anti-Semitic and where and where that comes from. So yeah, I I, I get it, 
and uh, I can understand how in a movement like that um, to those who want to be anti-Semitic could use that as a methodology to say, well, I'm just going to use this movement in order to emphasize it. But I liken it to this. If I was living in 1962 to 1967 in the U.S., the BDS would be the civil rights movement for the African-American, where they said, okay, since we no longer have the rights to to sit at the front of the bus or to use the white-only water fountain or the whatever, they decided we're going to boycott until our voices are heard because the violence didn't work. They tried being violent. They tried uh, doing all these other kind of things to to achieve that goal, but nothing captured more attention than taking the money away from the people who needed that support. And then I think the BDS movement in of itself has succeeded because it's catching the attention of people worldwide, where now this discussion is being broadcasted, where people are now having this debate and this discussion. Whether or not it's being approached in the best of manner, that's a separate issue. But has the BDS movement as a whole brought to the light an actual dialogue. Yes, me and you and Isabella are doing it right now. And it's at least one avenue that is not violent because for many, many years, the only form has been violence. Look, they went to a war, right? The six day war, that didn't work. Then you had the Intifada. And then for decades after that, you had violence. Then it was suicide bombings Then it was throwing rocks. And then it was all types of violence, finally, there's some sort of an outlet. Look, it's not a perfect outlet. Can it be used as an inflammatory way to attack Jewish people? Yes. But at least at this stage in the game, no one's dying. And I'm okay with that. That part I'm okay because from here forward, we can find a better means and a better way. And I feel that everything has to come full circle where we're going to find a place to begin, a starting point, and we can only build from there. And I hope my my Hope is that eventually we wouldn't, we're not going to need a BDS movement. We're not going to need any movement because in that stage of the game, we're going to have opportunities to have real voices, real dialogue where I don't have to be from Gaza and not be able to talk to my brethren in Ramallah because of the blockade. I don't have to go through Egypt to take a flight to another country to walk into the border a different way. Because I also believe that part of the problem is that a lot of common Israelis don't know the plight that goes on because they haven't had the opportunity to experience what goes on in some of the other parts where the Palestinian people are. So for me, for example, um, the BDS movement signifies something very strong. It's finally the one time I can say that the Palestinian people have a nonviolent means to finally get their voice heard and say, look, we need we need it. We need help. We need you to pay attention. We need Israel's government and leaders to finally say, okay, you know, we told them to stop being violent, they're stopped being violent. We told them to stop throwing rocks, they stopped throwing rocks. We told them to stop, you know, using inflammatory language. Okay, they're stopping to use inflammatory language. What other means do we have? That is literally the only political means that we have. Clearly, I've already established in the beginning of this dialogue, our our representatives are not representatives. I'll be the first one to say it, and at least I have the courage to say it. The PA is a horrific representation of what the Palestinian people need. They're horrific. Hamas is not what the Palestinian people need. The Palestinian people no longer need any means of violence whatsoever. They need an honest dialogue. They need to be treated with the same respect. And don't forget, a lot of the reason why we say apartheid, and I want to just explain that, The reasons why uh, the the term apartheid is being used is because when you are living under occupation, not all Palestinians live under occupation. Some do live in Ramallah and have the freedom of movement. But then when they want to enter uh, Israel proper or or the the, the main land of, of Israel where they're not citizens, they are restricted. So what is an apartheid state? An apartheid state basically has two sets of rules for two sets of people. Well, there's three sets of rules. If you're an Israeli, you have a set of rules. If you're a Palestinian living under occupation, you have your second set of rules. But then if you're a Gazan, there's all rules altogether. So as a Gazan right now, living in, if I'm in the U.S. and I want to visit Gaza, Adar, I cannot go there. I cannot go to Gaza. I have to fly into Egypt 
and at the discretion of the Egyptian authorities, whether they decide to open up those borders or not, I can go in at their discretion. It could be once a month, could be once every three months, could be once every four months. Re more recently, my uncle went there just to visit after not being there for six years, who ended up being what should have been a two-month vacation for eight months, simply because they didn't open the borders. So when we say apartheid state, that's literally what we mean, that there's three sets of rules for three sets of conditions. It's not saying that Israel's racist. Do I believe Israel's racist? No. I've seen Jews come in all shades of colors the same way I've seen Arabs and Muslims come in all shades of colors. So the word racist, I think, isn't the right term to use. Do I believe that the Israeli government has prejudicial practices? Absolutely, I do. And it's evident. Can we say that those practices are based on their security concerns or their security needs? Yes, you can. But you know what? The U.S. has security concerns and security needs, and I don't see them doing those same practices. And, and for just to go back one example with the demolishing of the homes, when a person enacts an act of violence, that person should be held responsible, not the entire family. That to me looks like a kind of like a, a collective punishment. If someone does an act of terror and then you go and demolish the whole house and now the mom, the brother and six of his siblings are in the street, all you just did was solidify in those six future acts of terror. That's what you did. You invested in six extra additional acts of terror because you've now shown not only did my brother die, you took away my house. You see, they're, they're not putting the blame or the onus on the act. They're putting the blame and the onus on the actors that they can actually see. And that is what's further uh, entrenching this kind of uh, hatred and, and no dialogue. So we have to start having a more productive means. BDS by no means should be used at all to be anti-Semitic at all. Using any form of action just to simply be prejudicial towards a group of people is unnecessary. And I have every right to say that I believe, me personally, that I do believe Israel has a right to exist because I'm a realist. I believe that the Jewish people are uh, indigenous to that land. Yes, they are. And I don't think any honest Palestinian would ever tell you likewise, because even as a Muslim, I know where Abraham came from. I know where Moses freed the people of Egypt to go to. I know that as a Muslim, that's in my theology. To sit, to sit here as a Muslim man and deny that, I would be denying my, my theology. I will not do that. So yes, they are indigenous to that land, absolutely. But being indigenous to that land does not mean we cannot coexist with the others that are already there. And I think that has to be taken into consideration. And that's all that is. So Mo, I want to fight with you and I want to be, I want to find a way, a nonviolent way to, but BDS fundamentally in their charter does not believe that Israel has a right to exist. So, and in order for me to accept BDS, I have to, First of all, say all these things about Israel, and I think there's so much more nuance. You said uh, the three people, but the West Bank is divided into three areas, area A, B, and C. Area A is only Palestinians. Area B is Israelis and, and the PA who run it together, and area C is Israeli. So when we talk about apartheid and occupation, there's an occupation of peoples. That's for sure, and any honest person will tell you that. But Israel is not sovereign in this area. It is not so the people in the West Bank, Judea, Samaria, aren't citizens of Israel. It is, and it's the situation that Israel does not want to be in that Oslo and all these agreements have caused. And I actually just want to touch one more because you mentioned a lot of things. Um, the dialogue thing, BDS stops dialogue because in order to, you know, be a part of the BDS movement, you have to number one say all the feel these this way about Israel, believe that Israel's an apartheid state because BDS doesn't make the difference between Tel Aviv and the West Bank. BDS doesn't make that difference. And I agree with you on so many points. And I and I want and I want to see and I, I'm craving to see a place and a time where Palestinians can travel freely and where there shouldn't have to be home demolitions and there shouldn't have to be innocent victims because of the act of one. But this is and I'm going to bring it back to the diaspora, a role that we need to have in terms of de-radicalizing each other, each other's both sides on both camps in order to move forward. And I want to, and I want to fight with you. And if I see someone say Palestine is, Palestinians don't exist, I'll fight against that. 
But BDS is not a space for me to do that. And I think that BDS, another problem with it is that it places the blame only on Israel. BDS, you, you'll say that the PA is corrupt, but BDS will, will not accept the Arab rejectionism or will not accept that Israel is, you know, there's Palestinian members of parliament in Israel. BDS opposes this. There's no room for me in BDS. And I would say I'm pretty moderate. You know, here I'm talking to you. I want peace. I'm, I crave for peace because being anti-Israel, being anti-Palestinian is being anti-Israel. And that's a fundamental belief of mine. And I wrote an article about it. So how can I, as someone who believes Israel has a right to exist, be a part of the BDS movement? How? I, I, again, like I said in the beginning, I think BDS began. It's, it's, the, it's the, at least the beginning part of where it can go from there, right? Because like I showed, you know, it started with this extremely violent, you know, way to have a resistance. And now it's finally evolving into something at least peaceful. So I think at, at the beginning stage, we can agree that it may not be the best methodology now, but is there going to be an opportunity to use something like BDS to kind of have a better way of protesting um, a policy? And I'm not too familiar with their charter. I'm not going to sit and say, well, I know what their charter says and what they call for. I don't. But I do know this. In the early stages uh, between 1998 to about 2004, I do remember there was a boycott of products being made in settlements. Uh, any products that were made in settlements, they were boycotting any products made specifically in settlements. So the BDS movement um, was birthed from that being able to say, you know what, we're not going to support these settlements because in supporting these settlements, it's kind of like supporting um, your occupier, in a sense, okay, essentially. That's how it was looked at. So mm -hmm. it was, it escalated, it evolved from there. When people saw that this was successful and it was catching wind and they're like, wow, finally people are listening to us and they're not, you know, having these wines that are grown on these vineyards and they're not uh, importing these dates and these figs. Then it evolved from there. When they realized it was catching steam and it was catching political uh, ears, that's how this evolved. Um, do I believe that BDS calls for the ending? I don't know if, if they do. I, like I said, I didn't read their charter. It would be silly because, as I stated earlier, do I believe that Israel has a right to exist? Absolutely. But I don't think that calling for Israel's right to exist means that I can call for my own demise. I think we equally have a right to exist, as we've always done. We've always existed. We've always coexisted. We've always been in that land. I, I know that I can trace uh, 12 generations minimal, uh, you know, Arab tradition. You always keep track of your, uh, your father's first name. That's how you're able to count your traditions. So, for example, my name is Muhammad Mazen Muhammad Naman Abdul Qadir Rahmi. Ibrahim, uh, Khalil al-Banna, but I stopped there. There's six more, I just don't know it. But we count that because that's how many generations we can go back. So I don't think me calling for your right to exist means that I'm also calling for my own demise. And equally, I don't think calling for my opportunity and my right to exist calls for you to demise. And I think that Isabella would be a beneficial part of BDS. And here's why I think you'd be a beneficial part. Because people like you can articulate and explain to the BDS movement how you want to support and be critical of policies of Israel without calling for, as you said, the, the eradication or the denying of their right to exist. How can we equally exist and get your voice heard so that this discussion and this movement goes in the direction where it produces some productivity as opposed to divide? I don't want you to have any problems when you go to college campus. I don't want you to have any issues at all. And I would hate for someone who claims to be a BDS supporter to enact any verbal or physical violence towards you, because that's not what I stand for. You see, as a person, and this is another thing, Adar, that I've always found, I've noticed that people who've never visited Israel or Palestine a day in their life are more passionate about it than the people who've gone through it. And I'm sitting there going, and I know after this YouTube discussion, I'm probably going to catch a lot of heat. I can't believe you said Israel has a right to exist. Have you lost your mind? No, I've been through the struggle. I know what it's like to lose family. I've seen it. I've been there before. I know what it's like 
to be, uh, you know, under uh, military occupation. I know what it's like to be incarcerated at a young age. So yes, my opinion does matter a little more than yours. I'm not saying you don't have a right to have one, but how can your opinion be much stronger than mine? And you've never lived there. You've never seen this place. Your foot has never touched the sand. You have never even tried a date. You've never tried an olive from any of these olive, beautiful olive trees. How can you have such a strong and harsh opinion of a country you've never visited or seen? So that is why I have such a, and I hope it, 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 it emulates from my, my words. I hope I'm articulating clearly that I sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, truly believe that in the future, there will be a, an opportunity for us to coexist peacefully. But we both equally have to do away with what we have been taught. You know, and it, it, it's being taught in a plethora of ways. We're being taught uh, by interactions. We're being taught by our TV screens. We're being taught by stories that have been told that aren't true. Uh, and, and we have to stop that. We have to start fresh. We have to start honestly, and we have to start by looking at each other as we began. Humans, start there. Understand we mutually have a, an honest connection to each other. As Arabs, you're tied through Ishmael. As Jews, you're tied through Jacob. We are tied through Abraham. As long as we can remember that on that level, that's the one part that can bring us together and understand that we have a starting point. And I hope that, that that brings us together. That's my hope. Great. So we're going to move. We're going to move to final thoughts. You'll both have an opportunity to, to share some final thoughts. The conversation's not ending. For those unfamiliar with Discord, it's an app where we have all sorts of dialogue around the clock, around the clock, and there's a way to also have voice and video conversation. So we're going to continue the conversation on Discord. So it's not ending. I'm dropping the link to Discord right now. Join. To those fighting in the comments section, I hope you come with the spirit that Isabella and Muhammad have shown. We lost Muhammad having some internet issues. To those fighting the comments, I hope you can come with the spirit that Isabella and Muhammad just showed on how to have a respectful dialogue despite our differences. To those new to the page, like and subscribe. If, if you haven't expressed yourself on this video, Give it a thumbs up. If you hated it, thumbs down it. That's fine. Express yourself. And we have a Patreon. $1 a month, $2 a month, $20. It's up to you. Any support helps us. Oh. Uh, Muhammad, welcome back. And um, Yeah, sorry. No, all good. I'm just, I'm just wrapping up, and then you could, you could have final thoughts. Um, once you join Discord... You'll see on the left-hand side, it says lounge. You click the lounge, you're connected with your voice. And then it's up to you if you want to turn your video on. You could just listen. You could share your thoughts. It's a conversation for everybody. You could ask Muhammad and Isabella questions. The conversation continues. And Isabella and Muhammad, I need to tell you, you both did an excellent job. Um, expect a message from me in the next few weeks to invite you back for another session. I'm impressed. I appreciate I, I truly appreciate the time you've given today and, and you know, your, your, your thoughts and your inspiration. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, with that, we're going to give you final thoughts. Take, take all the time you need. Uh, final thoughts. Shalom. Salam. That's my final thought. And I, and I really mean that because um, without understanding what that means and enacting and truly living in the spirit of shalom or living in the spirit of salam and understanding what coexistence means. There is no future. I don't want Israelis living under the fear of a rocket, but I also don't want my brethren in Gaza living under the fear of the same. And the only way to do that is through maintaining an honest dialogue and I want my fellow Palestinians to really listen to what I'm going to say, and I'm okay with catching heat for this. Please stop saying the Jewish people. Because in saying the Jewish people, when you critique Israel, is, is putting all Jewish people under the umbrella that they're all in agreement with Israel. And that's not the case. 
Not all Jewish people agree with the policies of Israel, but they are all going to have opinions. So that is a form of prejudice when you do that. You can be Jewish and be critical of Israel, and you can be Jewish and be pro-Israel policies, just like you can be an American and an ultra-conservative Republican, but be a Democrat and be critical of, of America. So I, I really need them to stop doing that and start adjusting that language and saying, I don't agree with Israelis' policies. Stop saying the Jewish or the Jewish, because to me, I feel like that is taking away from the conversation. Because you're, you're actually being biased and discriminatory without even realizing it. And when I hear often terms, oftentimes I hear uh, when I watch the Israeli news, they, they refer to the Aravim. They say the Arabs or the Arabs or the Arabs. If we stop saying the Arabs and start saying exactly what we mean and mean what we say, it becomes a better constructive conversation. So let's live in the spirit of salam and shalom in the terms of how we think of each other, how we talk to one another, the dialogue that we have and the words that we use. And once we start doing that, inshallah, bezet Hashem, we'll be fine. Amen, brother. Amen. Isabella, the floor is yours. So I think what Mo said was really beautiful. And we see it all the time. Family fights all the time. Cousins don't always get along. Brothers and sisters don't get always get along. I know not in my house, but in the, I mean, especially not in my house sometimes. But Mo, I think that just the fact that our friendship is so public on TikTok, it is so impactful. Seeing you get heat for sharing a video of mine or seeing people, you know, comments on my end on the what is a Palestinian and so many things just talking together. It breaks down so many misconceptions, really. And we're not going to agree on the BDS thing, but we can talk about it. And what I appreciate is that we can talk about it and we can understand each other's side. And you know what? I still haven't fully understood your side. You still haven't fully understood mine, but we still respect each other and our morality is never put into question. And I think what a key thing is, something that you also touched on is people who are not involved in the conflict are the ones waving the flags the loudest and the ones who are the loudest about it. And it's enough with, you know, students or activists who don't have a stake, don't have a skin in the conflict, using this conflict as an academic exercise. It's not. And talking with you and engaging with you and other, hopefully more activists like you and hopefully we can create a community of like-minded individuals who will criticize specific policies and that comes with education and knowing and not saying the Arabs, the Jews or broad statements. It com comes with more knowledge and it comes with criticizing from a place of love because we want better and not to destroy. So I think that's a very important thing that came through on this live and and um, I hope that others and so on will, will be that way. So thank you, Mo. Muhammad, brother. My pleasure. Isabella, sister, thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. We're going to move over to Discord. I'm going to drop the link one and final time. See you all there with love.